And open your Bibles this evening, first to John chapter 1. You're going to be reading verses 43 through 45. And then we're going to turn over to John 14 and read verses 1 through 11. So if you can kind of have both of those passages ready, we will read together from God's Word. First, John chapter 1, verses 43 through 45. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then John chapter 14, beginning with verse 1, reading through verse 11. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you as we have been studying the lives of these men you have chosen. And we have the opportunity tonight to study your word, particularly as it reflects the life of Philip, one of your apostles. Would you bless us and give us insight and understanding? And most of all, Lord, would you work in us as you worked in Philip? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the best sets of books that I own is a two-volume set entitled The Life and Sermons of Edward Griffin. Uh, 
Now, many of you might hear that and say, I'm not sure that that would be the best set of books I had. I'm not big on life and sermons of some minister. Griffin was a minister in the late 1700s, early 1800s. He labored with great success in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and then New Jersey. And when you read Griffin, there's absolutely no question. You will discover a man who loved the Lord, a man who loved the Scriptures, a man who loved the church, and a man who labored incessantly for the conversion of the lost. And brethren, when I read Griffin, I think I want to be like that man. But you know, when you read examples of men like that, the problem is that we look at those sterling examples and our heart just sinks because we think, I will never be able to be like that man. I will never be able to accomplish what that man accomplished. Let me remind you of those words that Christian hears in Pilgrim's Progress when he goes into interpreter's house. And interpreter says, is it fitting that the strength of an ox be found also in the wren, a little bird? The point is this. Sometimes God uses oxen. He raises up men with extraordinary gifts and extraordinary abilities, and he uses them greatly in the kingdom of God. But my friends, most of the time, God uses wrens. He uses the very ordinary not the extraordinary. He uses people with perhaps a few gifts, but not great gifts. He uses wrens in the work of the church. We see that in the lives of the 12 apostles. And we see it especially when it comes to the life of Philip, whom we are considering this evening. Peter, James, John... The Apostle Paul, they were oxen, and God used them mightily. Their ministry was marked with great success in the life of the earlier church. But as we begin to look at these other men, the second set of apostles, we had that inner circle, Andrew, James, John, Peter. But now we look at the second set of apostles, And brethren, the luster does not shine quite as brightly as it did. And yet, here's what I want you to remember. Do not forget that God called these men too. And God used these men in the life of the church. He used these wrens to spread the gospel. Throughout the globe, he used these men in the life of the church. 
to build it and strengthen it. And he can use you. You might not be an Edward Griffin. You might not be an Apostle Peter. But if you're a faithful wren, God can use you. We're looking at Philip, and I would expect this man has probably not been one who held a place of prominence in your own thinking. And that's perfectly understandable because he doesn't hold a place of prominence in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't even mention him apart from the list of the 12 names of those that Jesus told are called to be his apostles. So every reference to him is found in the book of John. And we're going to be looking at four incidences in particular, John 1, John 6, John 12, and John 14, two of which we have read. So let's start with the first point. As you have in your bulletins there, we found him. John 1. Verses 43 through 45, as we read. According to John, Philip, along with Peter and Andrew, would have been there with John the Baptist in the wilderness. And remember that Andrew and one other disciple heard John say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they began to follow Jesus. Well, it was just one day after the calling of Andrew and Peter and probably James and John that the Lord calls Philip. And in verse 43, we have these striking words. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and he found Philip. And said to him, follow me. In other words, Jesus purposely went and found Philip. He went and searched until he found him. And he called him. And he said to him, follow me. I don't think there could be a clearer example of how the scriptures speak of what we in our day and age seem to regard as mutually exclusive. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God, particularly in salvation, and the doctrine of the responsibility of man. But what we see here is how the scriptures take those two doctrines and do not record any sense of tension between them. That God being sovereign and man being responsible, he must respond that those things are not mutually exclusive. They are, in fact, best friends. And they worked together. I don't know about you, but... In my own life, it was probably five years after my conversion that I began to see, finally, the doctrine of election and predestination. 
Before that, I thought it was all about me. I had heard the claims of the gospel, but I had decided to follow Jesus. I found Jesus, and I accepted Jesus. I chose Jesus. Well, apparently, Philip thought much the same way. Notice after verse 43 tells us that Jesus found Philip. Philip goes and finds Nathanael in verse 45, and he says, We have found him. From Philip's perspective, he had found Jesus. From Jesus' perspective, he had found Philip. We really see both things taking place simultaneously, with obvious preeminence given to the decree of God. But at this stage in Philip's life, he had found Jesus, the one of whom Moses spoke and of whom the prophets spoke. Remember how Isaiah described Jesus, the Messiah, coming Messiah. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Moses, in Deuteronomy 18, talks about how God was going to raise up a prophet from among the brethren, even greater than himself. Now, that Messiah whom Philip is certain they have found is none other than Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So he's very specific. This is the one whom he had found or by whom he had been found. When we think about this, I wonder where you stand tonight. Has Jesus found you? Have you heard that call to you? Follow me. Have you heard the voice of Christ speaking to you? Brethren, if you are here, if any of you are here and have not heard that call, hear it now. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, it's through the foolishness of preaching that God saves those who believe. That call goes out to all who hear that word as it is proclaimed. And so here we see Philip in which Jesus finds him and calls him to follow after Jesus. My friends, it is a life-changing moment when we turn from our sin and begin to follow after Christ. But it is even more blessed moment when we see and understand that the reason we choose to follow Jesus is because He first found us because he came and opened our hearts as he did Lydia on the riverbank in Acts 16. 
and as Jesus himself describes it. A little bit later in John 6, we're going to to look at some of what takes place there. But we also hear from Jesus a number of things in the process. In verse 37 of John 6, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And he that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. But then in verse 44, he tells us, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so we hear the call. We see Jesus' promise that All who come to him will be welcomed, but we're also told that no one can come unless they are drawn by the Father. C.H. Spurgeon was often asked this question, how do you uh, reconcile these two doctrines, the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man? And one of the ways Spurgeon explains it was when we walk through the gates of heaven, we're going to look up and we're going to see the verse, whosoever will, let him come. But we're going to walk through the gate and we're going to turn around and on the other side, we're going to see chosen from before the foundation of the world. Yes, we choose Christ. We find Christ, but we do so because he first found us, because he came and by his grace and power opens our heart to receive him. So Philip sees it a little differently than Jesus did. Jesus found Philip. Philip thinks he found Jesus. They're not enemies. They're friends. Well, secondly, let's see what happens in John 6 when we hear this phrase, essentially, that's impossible. The opening verses of John 6 set the stage. It is the feeding of the 5,000. A great multitude of people are gathering. And notice what happens in verse 5. Jesus turns to Philip and says, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now we're told that 5,000 men, if we just guesstimate that many women, which wouldn't be unusual, and add to that children, we're probably talking upwards of 12,000 people who are gathering on the mountainside. And Jesus turns to Philip, not a a general question to any or all of the disciples, but he singles out Philip. And he says, Philip, where can we buy bread that all these people may eat? Well, notice verse 6, because we're told specifically that he said this to test Philip. He wants to teach Philip something. And so he asked the question of Philip. Why Philip of all the disciples? 
Well, it would seem from this particular incident and from the one which follows that Philip was something of the administrator for the group. So in other words, Philip was the one who was in charge of scheduling meetings. He's the one who was responsible for arranging meals or lining up a place to stay when they were traveling. He is the number cruncher. He's a facts and figures type of guy. And so he's the one that takes care of the business. And that's why Jesus asked him, where are we going to buy food for these people? Now, it doesn't take Philip very long. As I said, he's the number cruncher. He's thinking, he's calculating, and he's pretty well got it figured out. Not going to happen. And he responds, Lord, even if we had 200 denarii, essentially a year's wage for a working man, even if we had all of that, it wouldn't be enough. It would not be sufficient, even to give each man a little piece of bread. So Philip Here's the question. Where are we going to buy bread for all these people? And he says, Lord, that's impossible. It's not going to happen. It is impossible. In short, Philip does not see any way for them to provide food for all these people. John MacArthur in his book, 12 Ordinary Men, on this section has very astute observation, I think, when he says, remember, Philip was there when Jesus changed water into wine. Philip had already seen Jesus heal numerous people in, in drastic situations that the doctors had given up on or could do nothing for. Philip had already observed multiple miracles performed by Jesus. But in this situation, he can't get past the numbers. He looks at the circumstances, and that's all he can see. There's no way. It's impossible. It cannot be done. My friends, have you ever been in similar situation? Are you in an impossible-looking situation right now where you look at it and you just say, there's no way. I know what the Bible says. I know what God promises to do, but my situation is unlike anyone else's. No one's ever been in this situation. I hear that all the time. That's kind of the way Philip's thinking. There's no possible way. And maybe you've thought that way. Maybe you're thinking that way now with your job situation, with your family situation, with your health situation, or with some powerful, life-dominating sin 
that you just can't seem to control? How are you going to respond? Is Jesus testing you right now the way he tested Philip with this situation? Are you going to throw your hands up and say, what's the use? Can't be done. It's impossible. Or are you going to turn to Christ and say, Lord, I don't understand it. I don't see any possible way this is going to work out well. But help me to trust you, a God for whom nothing is impossible. There are numerous passages of Scripture, I think, designed to encourage us in this regard. One of my favorites is Second Chronicles chapter 20 and the story of Jehoshaphat. I need to summarize this for you, but basically the people of Moab, the people of Ammon, and the Ammonites, and others all gathered together in battle against Jehoshaphat. And we read that Jehoshaphat feared and sought the Lord and proclaimed a fast, and Judah came together and cried out for help from the Lord. But listen to Jehoshaphat's prayer. He comes before the assembly and he prays, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? Do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God? Jehoshaphat is crying out to God. This is an impossible situation, humanly speaking. There's no way he could defeat all these people. And then in verse 12, we read, O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Brethren, that's where we need to go. When we get in a situation that looks impossible, we need to go to the Lord. We need to say, Lord, I have no power against my enemy. I don't even know what to do. But my eyes are on you. Another great passage we find in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 8, and we'll deal with this in detail. It's the story of the healing of Jairus' daughter. You remember Jairus is a ruler in the synagogue. He comes to Jesus and pleads with him. His daughter is dying. Come to my house and heal her. Jesus says, okay. So he starts up. They're going along. The woman with the issue of blood for 38 years comes, touches the hem of his garment, is healed. And then they start back up to Jairus' home. And that's when Jairus sees a face he does not want to see. One of his servants comes and says, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. 
My friends, can you imagine? You talk about your heart sinking. All hope is gone. And Jesus looks at Jairus. And he says, only believe. Only believe. My friends, there are countless situations that we will find ourselves in and it will look impossible. But you're not dealing with a man who's weak. You're dealing with God. You need to believe him. Trust him. Do not trust in your own wisdom, but look to the Lord. Thirdly, in John 12, we have another situation in which Philip responds to a number of Greeks who come and say, we want to see Jesus. And it seems like Philip is very unsure of what to do. And while we might face impossible situations, we must understand that those kinds of extreme circumstances are not the only challenge to our faith. Sometimes it's the situations where we just don't know what to do. And that's the situation that Philip is in in John 12. Look at verse 20. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast, and they came to Philip. Again, why Philip? Because most likely Philip is the administrator. Philip is the one who would line up a meeting with Jesus. They know that. They've come to understand that by some means. And so they come to Philip, and they say, we would see Jesus. It's very difficult for us in our current sociological, economic situation to understand the full weight of what's going on here. For these Greeks to come and say, we want to meet with Jesus. And Philip's not sure how to handle this situation because these Disciples were all Jews. Jesus was a Jew. Jews didn't deal with Gentiles. Gentiles were unclean. And so they tried to keep their distance from them. They didn't like to talk to them. And they certainly would not have arranged for a private meeting with them. And yet these men come. And they ask, we want to see Jesus. Here, one of the problems may have been that no one ever mentioned this kind of thing in Philip's pastoral administration class. This was not the kind of thing that was ever done. This was unheard of for these Gentiles to want to see Jesus, to meet with Jesus. Philip did not know what to do. But he did know someone who could help. 
And so we read, Philip, in verse 22, came and told Andrew. And you know that Andrew was always bringing people to Jesus. Andrew is the one that went and found Peter and said, we found the Messiah and brought him to Jesus. So Philip goes to Andrew for help. Now, brethren, there are going to be times where you don't know what to do. And when those times occur, you need to go to the Scriptures. The Scriptures, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, are sufficient for every good work for every man of God. They will guide you. But if there is still doubt in your mind, then go to a godly friend. Children, go to your godly parents. Wives, turn to your godly husbands or turn to your godly minister. God has given us these relationships to help us, to guide us, to encourage us when we don't know exactly how to deal with the situation And we read that in this case, they bring the men to Jesus, and Jesus receives them and gives them the gospel. And he basically tells them, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. Very much like Philip himself. He says, you want to have eternal life? Follow me. Listen to me. Serve me. Lay down your life for me. That is what Jesus is telling them. He calls them to come and follow him. Well, we come to the last point. Originally, I put this down as look deeper, but all these other things were the things that Philip said That's kind of my idea of what this is, to look deeper into who Jesus is. But probably the better terms here would be, show me. Jesus is there with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. He has washed their feet. He is teaching them in the upper room. He gives this tremendous passage of Scripture in John 14, verses 1 through 6, climaxing with this this grand statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man can come to the Father except through me. Now, brethren, there's not another single verse that gives us the gospel as much as that verse does. Jesus is the only way, the only Savior. He is the truth. He is the life. You want to go to God, you must go through him and by him and trusting in him. But maybe Philip's response in this particular hasn't stood out for us. So Jesus is describing these things. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us. Show us the father. 
Now realize, Philip had believed in Jesus as the Messiah. Philip had followed Jesus for now on three and a half years. Philip had studied, he had learned, he had been taught many, many things from the teaching and preaching of Christ. But my friends, he had not seen Christ in his fullness. He had not seen his glory. He had not seen the majesty of his being and the beauty of his person. And so when Jesus says, if you've known me, you would have known my father, Philip says, show us the father. And Jesus says, Philip, how long have I been with you? All this time. And you don't understand that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? He doesn't understand the richness, the fullness, the majesty of Christ being. How long have I been with you? And do you not know me? My friends, let's bring this home in a very searching way. How long have you been a Christian? And what do you know of Christ? How long have you walked with him? And what do you know of his beauty? of his glory, of his majesty. You know, those questions in the Shorter Catechism, particularly four through six, are some of the the most extraordinary questions that we have. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. My friends, you could start on that one question, meditating, and you would have enough material to think about for the next six months, if not your lifetime. He goes on, he says, well, how many gods are there? Or are there more than one? And the answer, there is but one only, the living and true God. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three, we heard it this morning, these three are one God, the same in substance and equal in power and glory. What a description of the triune God. It took the church almost 350 years to get that right after the apostles. Philip didn't see it. He had been with Christ. He had heard Christ preach. He had walked with him. He had prayed with him. He had seen his great works. But he didn't understand the fullness of Christ. Brethren, we need to grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be content 
Yes, I accepted him as my savior. Yes, he's my Lord. I read his word every day and pray to him. That's great. But don't stop there. Press on. Study the word of God. Pray over that scripture and ask for illumination by the spirit of God that you might see Christ. We started with that that call to worship this morning. One thing have I desired of the Lord and that is what I will seek after. That I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. Brethren, let's seek in this coming week to take the time to get alone with God and behold the beauty, the majesty, the glory. Plumb the depths, brothers and sisters. Seek to know more of the glory of Christ. One of my favorite quotes from Gregory of Nazianza is that he says, the scriptures are a stream from which the lambs may drink and in which the elephants may swim. No matter how young you are, no matter how new to the faith you might be, you can come as a little lamb to the scriptures and drink your fill. But if you've been a Christian for 50 years and you're well advanced in the things of God, brethren, you might be an elephant. You can dive right in and you can swim in the word of God and you will never touch bottom. The riches of his glory. May God give us grace like Philip to learn at the feet of Jesus in all of these areas and more. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would use it not only to help us and enlighten our minds but to change us And draw us to Christ that we might learn more of him and delight ourselves in the Lord our God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a few moments and meditate upon these words.